Welcome to another episode of On The Way Home. I am your host, Michael Braithwaite from Blue Door. As always, we have an amazing guest here for you today. But before we get to the guest, I want to talk to you a little bit about my organization, Blue Door. I have the great privilege of working with some amazing heroes there uh, who work on the front lines to provide emergency housing, transitional housing, uh, really cool employment programs that pay a living wage, like our construct program that launches people into construction, and also people who are going to go into construction and build the uh, 3 million homes that we need across the country um, to end homelessness. And then all sorts of support services we wrap around individuals in the communities. We work with seniors. We work with families. We work with youth. We work with women fleeing violence. It's really, really cool. I work with heroes, as I said. They do great work. And as we're speaking, we are in the process of opening up a New York region built and owned by the region. Transitional housing unit, 18 new units, one bedroom units, four men, uh, much needed in our region. So it is very, very cool. Take off my glasses. They're, they're fogging up. Hopefully I can still see. Uh, and we, of course, partner on this podcast with the Canadian Alliance to end homelessness. I'm sure you've heard of the Canadian Alliance and homelessness. They are going to, as of November 1st, and we'll be talking to one of the presenters today, they are running... Um, the largest conference in North America for the first time in person for obvious reasons in a couple of years, but it's virtual too. If you can't travel or not comfortable traveling, uh, that is in Toronto, November 1st, I think to the 4th. It's going to be very, very exciting. They have all sorts of amazing speakers coming out. So if you're in the sector or interested in the sector, there's still time to register and come out for that. They're doing great work. They, of course, run all sorts of training, all sorts of different kinds of trainings at the Canadian Alliance and Homelessness. So go to caeh.ca. You can check out their Built for Zero work that they do uh, in different communities and much, much more. Check them out. They're doing cool work, and we'll see them all at the conference. Now, let's get to today's speaker. We have a great speaker. I'm really interested in this because I grew up uh, during this time, and I remember this quite well, uh, the conversation we're going to have today. Uh, and it was, it was in Toronto uh, in the 90s. Today, I have Sam Blondeau. Um, and so Sam graduated from Trent University with a joint BA in sociology and child and youth studies with a specialization in criminology and sociolegal studies. Um, they are currently an MA criminology student at Ontario Tech University, and their research interests are homelessness policy and life course effects of the criminalization of homelessness. Super cool, and we're going to talk about that today. Sam, welcome to the show. Thank you, Michael. Happy to be here. I'm, I'm excited to talk about Squeegee Kids. <laughs> well, that's am I, and, and I remember that I haven't heard that term uh, in a long time. Before we get to that, I want to cover a couple things. Uh, we ask everyone the same question um, when they come to the show, because everyone's answer is a little different, because it's personal. What does home mean to you? Well, see, that's a very, that's a, that's a pretty complicated question. It's not a simple question at all. Um, funny enough, that was a assignment I had in my uh, sociology of homelessness class that I took in undergrad, where we had to do a photo essay on what home meant to us. Um, and I think the best way I can describe it is that home is a feeling, right? Home is about feeling safe and warm and taken care of. So home can come with you everywhere. It doesn't have to be a physical structure. It is the people you are around. It is the people you take care of and the people that take care of you. So that's my answer. I love that. You know, it's quite often, uh, Sam, 
to what you were just talking about quite often and you probably get asked this as well people will say so what, what does homelessness look like and i use that answer i say it's not really a look so look in the mirror look around you there isn't one look uh to people expressing homelessness however it is a feeling and that feeling of loneliness um isolation uh fear etc right so that that feeling you talk about that is a uh, great and not one we've heard so far right we have different definitions of homelessness so we've seen that because it's a little different uh for different people we have an indigenous version that that kind of it's more around the elements uh and nature and family and that kind of thing and then you have your traditional uh, homeless hub definition as well i love what you're talking about with the feeling sam uh in your bio you that you sent me you talk about how your work is informed by your own lived experience and as well your work on the front lines as a social worker could you expand on this a little bit for our listeners yeah so um I came to university by way of a different path than most people do. Um, I, in the nineties, I was a street involved youth. And when that was going on, I developed a lot of really amazing, important connections with my friends because when I was a street involved youth in the nineties, um, the landscape of homelessness was much different than now, right? We didn't have the youth shelter. There was no youth shelters. There were no services for us. Homeless youth wasn't even a category. Right. Like we were that the terminology was runaways and throwaways at that point, because the reason you were on the street was either you were running away from bad stuff or you came for bad stuff and they kicked you out. So because that was my experience and I was one of the I quote unquote say lucky ones because I had some semblance of a support system, I was able to go to college and I really wanted to make use of what I went through. And I really wanted to work on the front lines with at risk youth in Peterborough. So that's what I, my whole aim was with my social service worker diploma. And then I worked frontline for 12 years and I got to do a lot of really cool stuff. I worked with foster kids. I worked in group homes and I, I worked in almost every shelter in Peterborough. Um, I got to work at the youth emergency shelter, which was amazing for me because like I said, that didn't exist for us. And the Peterborough youth emergency shelter was actually kind of born because of what was happening with us. The, the social workers that were getting involved in creating that were social workers that were in schools with us and talking to us in these little groups and recognized there was no supports for us anywhere. So um, working at the youth shelter was amazing. Um, I moved on to warming room and stuff. And then I worked for Canadian Mental Health Association for a while. And I ended up working with um, the Homelessness Partnering Strategy. Uh, we were the first pilot program here in Peterborough. So I was a community outreach worker and we got to create the program from the bottom up. So our mandate was to work with the hardest to serve in Peterborough in whichever way that meant. So our biggest mandate was to try to help people find housing, but more importantly, try to keep it. So th that meant we got to do a lot of really cool creative stuff. Um, and we got to do really cool programs. Like we had an ODSP project where we helped people transition from Ontario Works to ODSP. We had an ID bank. I ran ID clinics. Um, and all of these ideas and the way that I did stuff when I was working frontline, I was coming at from like my own experience or from listening to people that I had worked with. And then when I came back to university, it's funny because I was actually homeless again and I couldn't. It was a housing crisis. I came back to Peterborough with my kid and I could have been my own client. I, I would have I would have qualified for the project that I created. Um, so I, I was living with my parents and I went back to university and it was in university that I realized I was never a social worker. I was always a sociologist. It was always more about social theory and systems for me than it was about like the interpersonal stuff. So that's when I decided to switch gears and uh, try to come at it from a policy lens of things, try to see if there's something I can do 
to inform the bigger picture, to maybe, I don't know, shape roles a little differently for people that are doing the work that I used to do. Because I see people doing the work that I used to do and the systems have gotten worse. I couldn't even do what I wanted to do then and people can do even less now. Somehow the situation has gotten exponentially worse over the last like 10 years. It's, it's unreal. Yeah, agreed. What a journey. And thanks so much uh, for sharing that. Very, very cool. I mean, I think that gives you such a unique perspective in the work that you do. So we're going to dial it back to the 90s. Um, I remember them quite well. And I remember um, the term, I, so I was in Niagara, but we'd hear terms coming out of Toronto. We heard all about the squeegee kid, the legendary uh, squeegee kids. It was used quite often and even more prominent. And we'll talk more about that. Uh, and the kind of battles and how it was demonized uh, in, in the media or by politicians. But for those of, who may be too young or maybe not familiar, could you talk a little bit about uh, what the term meant and who, who, who were squeegee kids? So, I mean, essentially, squeegee kids were vulnerable kids, right? Squeegee kids were street-involved youth who decided that they wanted to try to earn a living somehow. They wanted to try to earn some money instead of sitting on the corner panhandling and flying a sign and begging. So what they did was they got squeegees and buckets and they went to intersections with lights and they offered to wash windshields for people for spare change. So um, they were essentially entrepreneurs, but the problem is they were entrepreneurs outside of the larger capitalist sort of engagement, um, which got people a little mad. <laughs> Construct, a social enterprise by Blue Door, provides high-quality residential and commercial construction and property services in the greater Toronto area. More than a business with a heart, Construct is a real solution to preventing and ending homelessness. Through its eight-week paid skills trades training program, complete with wraparound supports and on-the-job work experience, Construct lifts people out of poverty and into opportunity. To hire Construct for your next project or learn more about Construct's employment program, visit constructgta.ca. A little bit, yes. Yeah. So, so let's talk about this. The government side uh, in a negative light and, in fact, waged a war on Sweden kids with a, coming in with the Ontario Safe Streets Act in 2000. Can you talk about how this came about and what the result was due to this action? Yeah, that that headline of war on squeegee kids like i remember i remember when that headline was like when it came out like i remember seeing that on the papers back in the day and and every time i think about that headline and it's come up in my research more than once like it still makes me cringe because when i read that all i can think about is the headline is a war on kids it, it was literally a war on vulnerable kids who were just trying to survive and they were just trying to find a way to find some meaning in what they were doing rather than just sitting on a corner and begging for money I mean, and also keep in mind that like the systems at the time, the supports available to kids were not what they are now, right? So what happened was, is that at the beginning, when Squeegee Kids first popped up in like 95, there was a really positive narrative that, and most people thought about it the way I just said, that people were providing a service instead of just sitting on the corner begging for change, right? But then around 96, 97 is when things started to take a turn. And that's when there started to be these, these headlines coming out where they were describing Squeegee Kids as locusts and, and harbingers of danger and, and you know, signs of civil disorder and, and disobedience. And they used the narrative that Squeegee Kids were dangerous and violent. Um, they picked a couple of different stories. 
where uh, there was people saying that squeegee kids were forcefully trying to like wash their windshields. Uh, a politician said that he had a windshield broken. Um, but what's really interesting is that when you talk to the squeegee kids, squeegee kids were far more victimized than any of the motorists were. Like squeegee kids just get assaulted on the regular. They would be verbally assaulted, physically assaulted, degraded, have things thrown at them. Um, but that wasn't a conversation that was happening. Right. No one was worried about what was happening to these kids. Everyone was worried about what these kids were doing to our civil society. So they waged a campaign um, because Mel Lastman, the mayor at the time, wanted some actual like legal ramifications to try to criminalize squeegeeing. And so they ended up being able to pass the Ontario Safe Streets Act, uh, Royal Assent, on January 30th, 2000, which essentially criminalized squeegeeing without saying squeegeeing in the act. So with the Ontario Safe Streets Act, what it is, is it's criminalized the solicitation on a roadway or providing services on a roadway or solicit or solicit or doing solicitation in like a confined space. So like at ATMs or in doorways. Um, and then as an added little punch, uh, it also adds in there that you can't uh, get rid of used condoms, broken glass or needles, because that was another part of the narrative that was being used against Gucci kids was that they were a bunch of just drug addicts. And that they were dangerous. So what's happened is, is uh, the Ontario Safe Streets Act ended um, an almost 30-year era of the decriminalization of homelessness in Canada. Because in 1972 is when the Vagrancy Act was taken out of the Canadian Criminal Code. Um, and then in 2000 is when the Ontario Safe Streets Act was born, which is uh, our first neo-vagrancy, our first provincial neo-vagrancy law. And then in turn, we have it all across Canada now in different um, capacities. What's super interesting, though, is that the Ontario Safe Streets Act, when it first passed, actually criminalized charities, too, right? Because you weren't supposed to stand on a roadway and collect money. So when the police are out there or March of Dimes or whatever in these parking lots with buckets collecting change, that was technically criminalized under the Ontario Safe Streets Act. So what they did was in 2004, they amended it so that only <laughs> charities can do that, which is so ironic because... A lot of these charities provide services, right? So the charity that provides a service for the vulnerable youth can panhandle, but the vulnerable youth who needs money to buy food that day isn't allowed to. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, thank you so much. A large reason why we do this podcast is education, um, and thank you so much for that education right there. I didn't know that, and um, to, to see it's just basically under a different name they brought the Vagrancy Act back in. And I remember a few years back reading uh, in the paper, not squeegee kids, but there's one gentleman experiencing homelessness that has $65,000 in fines. And they, they threw yep. them out, right? But what a waste of time. And that poor guy, like, I mean, all those squeegee kids that are fined when you criminalize it, you're setting them back years of finding housing because now they have records, they're unpaid fines, their uh, finances are, are the, the, it's so much harder to get ahead Mm -hmm. when they throw those fines on right so you're right mm -hmm. they missed out on the point of hey why do we look at the the root cause of why someone would have to do that instead of attacking the people doing it right for yeah, sure we reverted back to the old school criminalization processes right yeah. and because it's it was over <laughs> poverty in our faces and and society doesn't deal well with that because when it's in your face then you have to deal with it right yeah. so and interestingly enough squeegee kids don't exist anymore but the Ontario Safe Streets Act still does and has had, uh, was like uh, in the Can I See Your ID study, it was, uh, I think, $3 billion or something in Ontario Safe Streets Act fines in just a short period of time, like a seven-year period or something. Like, it's just, it's unreal. 
So, so you've done a lot of work around this. You've recently just done a study. And at the upcoming uh, CAH conference in November, you'll be leading a session called Squeegee Punks Reunite, Safe Streets for All. Can you share with us what this session will cover? Well, what I want to do is I want to talk, I want to cover um, the importance of lived experience perspectives when it comes to things like legislation or services that are being provided or any of these discussions around policies or programs that really impact people's lives. Um, and talk about some of the alternatives to criminalization that could have been used or are being experimented in other places now that could have been used then, um, as well as trying to have a conversation around what frameworks work to help engage people when they are in the living experience part of it. How do we safely help people who are living through it get their voices heard so they're not re-victimizing themselves or re-traumatizing themselves or being tokenized? I love it. I love it. We often say on, on this show too is, is nothing for us without us. Why, why yep. would you not have, have those voices included? They're, they're the most important ones. Now, you've done a study just recently or a while back around uh, squeegee kids and that phenomenon. Like, what, how did that uh, study all come together and what were your hopes that you would discover throughout it? Well, it's funny because the study actually started a couple of years ago. Like the whole idea about it started a couple of years ago in second in my second year undergrad. Like up until I was getting ready to write a paper for an equality class, I had no clue that squeegee kids were even in the literature. Like I didn't know. I had no clue. So I stumbled across an article that had squeegee kids in the title. And I was like, are you kidding me? Squeegee kids? Like they, there's articles? What are you? Huh, what? And so I read it and I was just dumbfounded and mind blown. And so I went down a rabbit hole. I was like, oh, my God. There, there's all of this stuff where they talked, like there was like a huge dearth of research done in this small window of time when the Ontario Safe Streets Act was happening, right? So I got really into it and it became very personal to me because I was reading about my own experiences and my friends. And then I started to really notice a disconnect between what I was reading in the literature and what I knew to be true, right? Like, and noticing that the literature really is all coming from like researchers' perspectives and, and you know, people without lived experience which makes sense for the time. But what I wanted to do was I wanted to try to do an updated conversation. So because the Ontario Safe Streets Act is still in play and it's still doing so much damage everywhere and it's still so many consequences, I wanted to try to have a conversation and add to the conversation about what's happened now. Where are squeegee kids now? Like, what did the Ontario Safe Streets Act, how did that affect the rest of their lives? You know, like how did being the target of a war when you're on the street from the politicians that are supposed to be taking care of you like did that do anything the rest of your life where are you at now like what would you have to say about the way the ontario safe streets act happened about the campaign um or about you know what could have been done differently and it's also super interesting because most of my friends back in the day were very activist minded we were very politically minded and activist minded back then so it seems extra strange that no one tried to engage to come up with with other ideas Right. Because we would have been a group of people where it probably would have had more fruition come to it than they realized. But um, but it was really more about me wanting to add an authentic layer to this conversation that's been going on for a while in the literature that I that most of my friends weren't even aware was going on. So um, and and in, if, if I get lucky, it will help inform some sort of process that will repeal it. it I mean, it's been challenged numerous times for charter rights. Um, there's been different campaigns to try to repeal it. So I'm hopeful that maybe some of the stuff that comes out of my study will help inform that in the end. That would be amazing. 
Very cool. And no doubt that it will. Have there been any surprises along the way of the study, things that you didn't anticipate? No, honestly, the biggest surprise is the fact that I can do the study. Like, that's what I didn't anticipate. I didn't, like, I did not, um, I, I didn't think people would care. Like, honestly, like, I didn't think that it would be as well received as it's been. Um, and, and because it's from 20 years ago, right? And because it's, like, in the past and it's something that's just taken for granted as the way things are now, um, the how interested people are in what I'm doing is actually the biggest surprise. So. Very cool. Well, I, I, I'm not surprised. It, it, it's such... You know, like I said, it was a, a big thing back and, and it'd be amazing to, to hear more stories of how that criminalization actually affected so many people. Um, mm -hmm. So what happens when you, you said, here's my hope. So when do you hope to finish the study? And what do you want to do? Like, what do you have that? Are you going to roll with something else? Or are you going to take that push forward? What, what do you hope to do? Well, um, when I, I'm not sure when I'm going to be able to uh, finish the study, hopefully in, in a couple of months, all fingers crossed. Um, but what I want to do, one of the knowledge mobilization things I want to do is I kind of, I want to create a zine. So I would like to create like a zine where each of the people I talk to, depending on how many people have, will have a page and kind of about like the, like the one takeaway or the one thing they want people to know about what it was like to be a squeegee kid, right? Like to create some sort of cool, um, knowledge mobilization that might get people talking. Um, is the one goal that way. And then uh, what I'm hoping to do is go on to do my PhD. Um, and the research I want to do for my PhD really ties into this just with a different group of people. So I want to take a look at um, criminalization in, in Peterborough. And I want to do a similar sort of idea where I talk with people with lived experience and we try to come up with a social innovation model, some way to engage the stakeholders and people in power in Peterborough to try to bring the voice of lived experience to policy decisions here because we've got some serious issues happening and i think we need all hands on deck so <laughs> well, what about a what about a documentary so I, I think this would like people would be fascinated if you're sitting down where they're telling their stories and and, and i i don't know i mean you, you've seen the response so far i'm just thinking could that be a, a next step is to do something like well, that? maybe i mean it's all about funding you see if you've got lines and grants <laughs> that i can secure that aren't too much for me to write then maybe we can do that um <laughs> but you know what now there is actually a documentary out there i don't know if you've seen it but it's called spit uh no. street punks in traffic um and it was filmed in the 90s it was filmed right when the ontario safe streets act stuff was going on and it's the lens from a squeegee kid it's roach and a director you should really check it out. It's really, it's, it is such a good, um, it's such a good representation of what was going on. Cause it's nitty gritty and it's, it's like the roach cam and he's out there and he's recording stuff. And then he actually got another grant and did a second one where it's him traveling across Canada where, and some of that is him in legislature calling Harris out about the Ontario safe streets act and stuff. Yeah. So is that, you know, we have not recovered from so many things during that period of time. Uh, you know, I always talk about 1995 when they reduced social assistance rates by 21%. And we've heard like they're, they've never recovered. They're still nope. below 1995 levels, yet we're living at 2022 <laughs> prices, right? Which is crazy. With the housing prices about. that is affecting people of all walks of life now, not just the people that have been dealing with housing precarity forever, right? Yeah, it's definitely yeah. getting to be a much more complex landscape out there well we, we had, I, I was at something recently where a counselor said in 2010 they couldn't get anyone to write a, a line in the media about 
housing or housing crisis or homelessness. Yep. That it, but now that it's affecting the middle class and not just our most vulnerable, it is on everyone's mind, which, you know, double-edged sword. Should it have been a long time? But yes. But hey, we'll take it. And if it, it's, it takes that kind of pressure to get po different policy, we've said here, the, the crisis in the 90s, that's when it really began when yep. uh, the federal government got out of building social housing, hundreds yep. of thousands of units a year. It's a yep. result of bad policy. The only thing that's going to change it is good policy. And you're working on that. You're making sure that the voices of lived experts or lived experience are uh, going to be involved in those policy changes. So cool. So awesome. If someone wanted to check out uh, some of the work you're doing, uh, do, you, do, you, do you social media? Where could people find out more or follow? Um, I have, so there's the YouTube, there's that video from my, I have a presentation I did in undergrad, which was the first squeegee kid paper, um, that people can look at on YouTube. Um, but other than that, I don't really have anything out there other than the other project I'm working on, which ties into it with Dr. Naomi Nichols and her research for social change lab here in Peterborough. And so that's the research for social change lab at Trent. And you can, people can check out the zines that we're working on there. And we're looking at um, the shelter justice, like we're looking at the shelter system in Peterborough and mapping things out. So it all really ties in. And our next zine is actually going to be all lived experience perspectives. So, and that zine's online as well. Very cool. I encourage people to check that out. I encourage people to go to your session at the Canadian Alliance and Homelessness. They will not be disappointed as we were not today. Uh, so thank you so much for all the work you do on the front lines and now in helping to create good policy and make sure that the voices of our most vulnerable are heard. Uh, it, it's been so wonderful chatting with you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Michael. It was nice to be here. We'll see you at the conference. Well, listen, like every time, so this is our second conference guest. Uh, we had Abe on and then we have Sam. I am so pumped for this conference because I, I would say the brilliant people doing great work. Here we have someone who is a lived expert, a voice of lived experience, who then uh, through the eyes of a of uh, their frontline work uh, just really effective and then, then went back to school said, hey, you know what? I'm gonna do this on a policy level. So cool. Uh, I wish that would happen even more often. Uh, Squeegee Kids was a phenomena back uh, in the 90s and, and so cool to hear of this work happening now. Listen, criminalization of our most vulnerable never works. We've seen that with encampments uh, and, and it just doesn't work, right? It's not the way to go. Um, and, and I'm sure that uh, Every survey that uh, does work around that, we'll, we'll show you just that. Another great episode. We'll see you next time on the way home. I'm Andrea Askowitz. And I'm Allison Langer. And we are the hosts of Writing Class Radio, a podcast, but we are so much more. We have writing classes. So if you are looking for live online classes where you can join a community, write to a prompt, get feedback, and get better, check out all our classes at writingclassradio.com. And listen to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and at writingclassradio.com. Produced by Cryer Media and distributed by the Sound Off Media Company.